And a quick message about a fantastic Portland food adventure dinner that we have coming up on May 29th at the Beaverton Standard TV and Appliance in the Gen Air Kitchen. That's with Rick Gencarelli, who's going to be doing a four-course Italian meal. Those of you who know Grassa and Lardo and the fantastic food that comes out of there, you're going to want to join us. It's a great night. You can find it at portlandfoodadventures.com. Um, we have limited seating, and we have a couple of seats left, so get on it right now. This is Right at the Fork, and this is Chris Angelus, and we have a very interesting guest today, Richard Satnick, who owns Dick's Kitchen, in addition to some other businesses in Portland. Um, but Dick does something that's very, Richard, see, we're going to get to this. Richard does something that's very different. And that is, uh, he is really mindful of healthful eating and, uh, that's what they do at Dick's kitchen. So we're going to talk to Richard who comes from the, uh, New York area. Actually, he grew up, um, in Bloomington, Indiana. He went to college in Indiana as well. Uh, he also has done, Things like starting a bike business in Atlanta, Georgia. He has a toy store in Portland on Mississippi. He started Laughing Planet Cafe in Indiana and brought it to Portland and then sold it. He's an entrepreneur um, and he's done some incredible things and I don't think he's done. So we're here to talk to Richard Satnick today about his Dick's Kitchen as well as some other things. And uh, we'll learn quite a bit about uh, healthful eating and grass-fed beef. I didn't notice you you actually have the um, the hat coordinated with the shirt almost. Almost. <laughs> Me? I'm always... Am I too loud for you? No, no, you're great. I'll refrain from yelling here. Until later in the conversation. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll have to... We'll have to find a way to get there. There, I'm a little loud for myself, too. So, we were just talking in the quote-unquote green room. So, you listened to a lot of Frank Zappa? <laughs> I do. Years ago? So, yeah. what album did you pick up on? Where were you? Because I was uh, Overnight Sensation and... That was one of the that was one of the breakthrough ones for right. me. But once that started me, I went in all the directions he ever. You went backwards too. Backwards, forwards, Captain Beefheart, Susie was, Cream Cheese. Absolutely, that was my uh, my wife's name actually. Was it really? Yep. Yeah. So I, I loved Frank in high school and college. I went to see him. I was actually really disappointed when I went to see him in Tucson at the University of Arizona. Uh, he never really looked up. At the audience, and I had you know I waited in line for front row seats. So, but so speaking of rock and roll, I have a little trivia question for you because you're from Bloomington, Indiana. Part uh, partly from Bloomington, right? Where you grew up? Were you born there? Or I was you, born in Indiana, but I grew up in New York City. Okay, but so when did you leave Bloomington, Indiana? Oh, I lived there in college. After college, I started the Laughing Planet Cafe there. So okay, it's my second hometown besides New York City. So then you would you would probably know who the the rock star that comes from Bloomington Indiana oh, would be. Absolutely. Oh, well, you got to say it just so Johnny Cougar Mellencamp. No, there's someone I think that's bigger. Who's that? David Lee Roth. Believe <laughs> of course, it or not, I, I really didn't realize that. Yeah, he's from Bloomington, Indiana, which I, is odd because he's the last guy you think would be. Exactly. From Indiana. Right. So, yeah, and I knew John Cougar Mellon came. Actually, I was thinking, was he also? So you've just confirmed that. Yes. We both learned something new today. Very good. So maybe we'll learn some more things. Um, you uh, you have a lot of interests. Oh, yes. And um, you're not a chef. No. Um, you've, done a, you've done everything from bike shops. Yes. Toy stores. Yep. And now you have uh, Dick's Kitchen. Yes. Which is your? Which one is your baby? Which one is your? Out of in your whole life, which one have you been most passionate about? I, I assume Dick's Kitchen is what you're most passionate about now, but you know you started Laughing Planet Cafe. That had to require a lot of passion too. Oh, absolutely, especially in the beginning when you know I was sleeping on a mattress in the back room, and the prospect of making money was very far down the road, but. What happens is each one is a passion when you're doing it, and it becomes the focus of your life. You become 
monomaniacal and you you everything goes into that you see the whole world in terms of each individual business for a while my problem is that i also have a touch of entrepreneurial add uh, you have to to have this many things going on right and and so once something else trickles into my consciousness it begins to um transform things and and change my internal thinking about where i should be putting my attention um Oddly enough, one of my favorite startups was uh, is still in business in Bloomington. It's underneath the Laughing Planet. It's a coffee house called Soma, and it's one of the goofiest coffee houses you'd ever want to go to. But for some reason, it is dear to an enormous number of people's heart uh, hearts, and um, it serves the best coffee in the Midwest. So it it has uh, a, a Northwest style coffee culture with a kind of goofy Midwest aesthetic and. Yes, there are pictures of Frank Zappa on the walls there. So. Yeah, I'd love to know what that... So how long ago was that? Well, that was after I did started Laughing Planet. There was a basement space that had been a used bookstore, and I was dying for some decent coffee in Bloomington, which even Starbucks wouldn't come to back in those days. Um, and I had been out to the Northwest a few times and thought, mm. you know, why not here? So we, we decided to do something against all the advice that a, a tucked away in a basement with a bunch of little rooms that are kind of like your your uncle's basement with where he keeps all the that's the, very the naughty stuff. yeah exactly right? I mean, exactly and so we we opened that up and really was as a as a just an afterthought to doing laughing planet but it became very popular and to this day is still a major feature of bloomington life do you get back there very often not as often as i'd like there's so many new places to go and new ideas to cultivate but once in a while i go back and it it you know it's still when when you your college town your your favorite place you meet all your most favorite people in the world during that period of time so and some of them still live there so mm -hmm. it's it's always a pleasure i also was an active rugby player there and there's a huge rugby scene and a bunch of old boys that live there so it's whenever we get together particularly at a frank zappa concert because we named our team after uh, a frank zappa term we're the mud sharks Okay. And um, it's an important... Not so for number two. I thought that might be a good name for a team. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where did you get your entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit? Um, probably from my dad, uh, much as I would it would have annoyed me to admit that a while ago. Um, uh, my Is whole he family, still with us? Yes, he's, okay. he lives in Florida, um, and he bounced around from business to business as well. I initially thought I was going to be an academic, but then I get, grew restless and, and found that starting businesses was more fun and um, more challenging in many ways because you have to incorporate the real world besides the academic world. Um, so I think it's from my family, from growing up in New York, from watching people hustle naturally and always kind of got a new idea that they're working on. And that I brought with me to Bloomington when I went to college, and I guess it never left. Do you think people from New York are naturally a little more entrepreneurial because they have to make their way? It's it's not a place where you can kind of sit back and just let things happen. Um, natural is the tough word, but culturally, yes, without a doubt. It, it's a milieu that requires that you're either on the hustle or you're going to get knocked aside. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that's good for a certain amount of time, although I prefer what Portland offers most of the time, which is a a little more relaxed environment where people are still thoughtful and, and uh, creative, but without always pushing you aside when they want to get somewhere. No, they don't push you aside. <laughs> they let you go. They do, and then they then they might flip you off behind your back. Yeah, well, that's there. That's that's <laughs> that's the Portland passive aggressive uh, style. That is, you know, I've heard the word ever since I moved out here. I hear passive aggressive. I never heard about it in Connecticut, and now you hear about it a lot. And a couple of times I've been accused of being passive aggressive, and I'm trying to figure that out. So I think I'm just being aggressive, not passive aggressive. But um, so, uh, what is it about? What brought you to Portland? How did you get from? I assume you came from Indiana or New York. Where did you come from? Well, originally New York. Then I've lived in Atlanta, where I did my bike shop. Then back to Bloomington. Um, so it was from Bloomington after the first Laughing Planet started, and it was a conscious decision to find a place where maybe a couple of laughing planets could, could sprout. And um, I had been aware of Portland because of my interest in urban planning. Another facet of my background is I spent time as a plan commissioner, actually, in Bloomington. 
And when you read about progressive urban planning, Portland comes up constantly. And one point I thought I needed to come out and see how you do actually make a city livable and, and enjoyable for, for most people. And uh, came out here and looked around at the same time as I was interested in finding another spot for a laughing planet. I knew I couldn't do Indianapolis. Uh, it simply wouldn't have accepted a laughing planet at that time. Um, I thought about Chicago and it scared the hell out of me. So, um, you know, not really being a serious restaurant person yet, I thought I should go to a place that's a little less competitive than San Francisco or anywhere else. But mostly Portland was the reason I chose Portland was because it's it's an intact food shed. It's a place where you can see folks growing food, being conscious of why food has to be grown a certain way and not another way. Um, and folks willing to um, support that kind of a movement in the, con in the um, consumption area so that you have restaurants and people thinking about these things even 20 years ago. It was pretty obvious that this was one of the last best places to attempt to bring good food connected to good agricultural practices and good health. This was, this was obvious even then to me. So um, we came out here again without knowing a single soul and, and started uh, over on Southeast Belmont and took a few years before we figured out what we were doing, but eventually it, it became a viable business and um, grew to a certain size that eventually also um, I felt it was necessary to kind of go back to a new startup. So do you think if you had come to Portland and it appeared the way it does now, then would you have had the same impression? Because uh, it's a little more competitive now. It may not feel as competitive, but the market is definitely more competitive. Well, yes, you're right. That's an interesting question. Um, it would have certainly given me pause now. Um, I think in, in on balance, I would still probably do it because because of the compet because of the environment around Portland, because of the farming community here of which I'm now participating. So, um, it really does have some unique features that make it a great medium-sized city with a with an enlightened populace mostly, um, and a uh, an access to the food that we can we can change our our culture. Really, we have an opportunity here that I think in few places in America that would work, at least few places that are affordable anymore. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique. So, what are you doing? You're on the you're living on a farm. And uh, you commute back into the city. Uh, it's I, I do a little of that, and it's a beautiful thing to just be able to take in Oregon before you get to the city, uh, the rural areas. Um, so what are you doing on your farm? Well, um, first of all, I'm at my farm a couple days a week, and I stay in the city a couple days a week mm -hmm. in order to reduce the, the commuting time and, and expense and impact. Um, but what I'm doing there is raising um, some of the critters we're eventually going to put into the supply chain at Dick's Kitchen, um, in particular emu, um, which are some of the stranger birds you can, uh, you can ranch. Um, but when I had tried uh, an emu burger a few years ago, uh, I was stunned at how tasty it was. And when I found out how nutritious it was, how good and high in omega-3s it is, um, I resolved to get that on the menu only to find out that most of the emu farmers in Oregon had kind of gone out of business, um, not being able to figure out who really wanted their product. Well, I wanted it, but it was too late. So my purveyor said that if I really wanted emu, I'd have to raise them myself, to which I replied, okay, um, as long as he'll process it, I'll go ahead and, and uh, do some emu. And then went out and looked around for an appropriate place and found one out in Southeast Clackamas that um, we're now in the emu ranching business. We've got uh, 11 adult birds now and uh, 25 eggs in the incubator with our fingers crossed as to how many of those are going to hatch, actually. How long do they take to hatch? About six weeks. Um, so we're at about the end. We've got a week to go, um, and we're keeping our fingers crossed. So is uh, I can't say that I know... I may have eaten emu. I'm sure in all my travels in Portland, I probably had a bite. But mm, more likely it's been ostrich. Okay. Uh, ostrich is a little more common on menus, and it's the same bird family. The ostrich is the, uh, the African version of the emu, which is the Australian version of the ostrich. And they're both 60 million-year-old bird family stretching right back to dinosaurs. And boy, you can really tell when you're around them that they're connected to dinosaurs. They're 
they have tiny, tiny, tiny brains and big, giant claws on their raptor-like feet. So it's it's a pretty cool thing. But how, they're, how big are they? Um, they stand about as tall, five and a half feet, six feet. Um, wow. But um, there's probably only about 30 pounds of meat on each one. So it's not necessarily... We're not sure this is going to be an economically viable idea, but it'll sure be a tasty one when we get to that point. So you haven't served any emu yet at Dick's Kitchen? Only only the original round that we got from Nikki Farms, our supplier, had some from some previous farmer, and we got it in, served it once or twice on our special rotation of burgers. Everybody went nuts, and that's when I asked him, can I get more, and he said no. So they went nuts for the flavor or because of the, the fla- health properties? No, the, the flavor. Properties. The flavor. I mean, it, it really is a distinctive flavor that's a cross between beef and turkey, but a little, a lot richer even than beef. So it, it, it's red meat, doesn't look like any fowl I've ever seen. And every time you, you bite it, even when you bite into an ostrich burger, you'll generally kind of be startled at, as to how much flavor it has. And because it's got a decent amount of fat, it's very, you know, the flavor is really abundant, and that fat is really good for you. So, Talk a little bit about how you got to Dick's Kitchen and what happened in your life to... Uh, to have you develop the concept? Um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting saga, starting with my researching um, an anti-inflammatory diet, having several maladies that are um, based on an inflammatory problem, uh, including arthritis and a family history of coronary artery disease. So I, I began to realize that the common theme in most of the things bothering me was inflammation. So I, I started researching it, finding that on a long list of things that you're not supposed to eat in order to reduce inflammation in your body was red meat um, with an asterisk that said, unless it's 100% grass-fed beef, you shouldn't be eating it. But if it is 100% grass-fed beef, you actually should be eating it because this will improve your health, improve your inflammation uh, paradigm. And um, I was a little surprised by that, not having had many hamburgers in all the years I had done Laughing Planet. I was pretty much a vegetarian. Um, not exclusively, but no burgers, uh, knowing they came from feedlots and the industrial system creates beef that's not healthy. So I, I was surprised by reading about that in grass-fed. I serendipitously was connected to a farmer and a rancher in eastern Oregon, Carmen Ranch, Corey Carmen, mm-hmm. um, had a uh, had a problem really selling the gra- her ground beef because nobody wanted to pay the extra premium that she needed in order to make it sensible. And at that same that time, transportation hmm? costs is that or um, transportation processing? Um, the fact that you don't get to the same weight that a that a uh, a feedlot cattle get to because they're I mean they're basically force fed a lot of high fat food and high nutrient food that's not actually their natural diet. They gain their weight faster, so you get a better return on each animal. So in order for that to make sense, somebody has to be willing to pay a little higher price. And I, at the same time, was researching the anti-inflammatory diet. It was a very interesting serendipity. I I said, well, give me a sample. Let me see what we can do with it. And um, we had, I had a chef who worked in the Laughing Planet system um, cook up a couple different grass-fed beef samples that we got from around the Oregon area. And uh, we were shocked at how good it was. And consistently, we kept pointing to Corey's beef as the most flavorful, the best uh, in the selection. And we did that as a blind taste test. And so it was pretty dramatic to us. It, it opened my eyes when I tasted it. It was that same experience I mentioned about eating emu. You really kind of are, your eyes get wide and go, wow, that's really good. Once I realized it was that good and I had discovered how healthy it was, the light bulb went on in my head that maybe you could do a business around an idea of serving people healthy beef and help folks like Corey Carmen achieve her goals of being a viable rancher and eventually growing her business, if not eventually influencing her neighbors to adopt her methods. Because it turns out the last surprise in grass-fed beef is the environmental piece, that actually you, uh, you restore ecosystems and create... Uh, much more fertile environments by using uh, cows and other ruminants to creatively graze and, and disturb and, and poop all over the fields, you actually have, um, you have an opportunity to reverse the damage that industrial agriculture has caused. So it's, it's literally the whole 
the whole thing is is mind-boggling, both in terms of personal health, in terms of flavor, and in terms of environmental health. It's it was one of those moments when you realize, well, business or no business, I got to do this. This is really important. And and our mission at Dick's Kitchen, besides serving you healthy, delicious food, is to see that Corey Carmen is successful. To see that her model uh, is is working and people adopt it, and that we can begin much broader application of these ideas in restoration agriculture. Is anybody else, I, I know Carmen Ranch products are served in some restaurants, but is anybody else focusing on it the way you are uh, in Portland? Um, not to the extent that we're really the exclusive hamburger purveyor for um, Carmen Ranch. Other folks do different things at much higher prices. Our challenge, of course, in, in Dick's Kitchen is to try to take the grass-fed beef paradigm and keep it affordable and accessible uh, especially with America's favorite food, the hamburger, as a, as a kind of a sneaky way to change the game by serving a great hamburger that may, in fact, get people to understand this is an important environmental improvement. Um, but we, we probably should promote her work even more. I mean, she's, the stuff she's doing is mind-bogglingly important. And um, for a cynical New Yorker like me, I'm, I'm surprised how hopeful I am that there is, there are these solutions that are unfolding in front of us involving things like grass-fed beef and other forms of permaculture. And you're in an area or a city that is receptive to that too. And if, I think if, the, if they get the message and they run with it, um, there's a lot that can be done. I find it interesting that environmentally it's, it reverses some of the damage and also personally as well. Um, what does a burger at Dick's Kitchen cost? Uh, it's around seven bucks, seven and a quarter for a basic one. So it's not inexpensive. Um, it is well. That's cheap. That's not expensive by today's standards. Not how, for the quality. How, how? What is it? A quarter pound? Uh, no, it's five point three ounces. So it's bigger than a quarter pound. Okay. Uh, it's a third of a pound. Uh, five and a half ounces. Sorry. And um, we serve it on a a sourdough bun that's our own our own design. Uh, interestingly, which is it, purpose of that is to reduce the amount of gluten in even our regular bun. It's also a vegan bun, so anybody can use it on our other products. Um, but sourdough is a uniquely healthy way to create a bun and to create great flavor. Plus, you got to trap all those delicious juices that run off this beef because it is really, really flavorful and really Is juicy. it really juicy? I didn't, I didn't think the grass-fed beef was as juicy. Well, you need to check ours out because these things... All the other buns we've used fell apart because they couldn't hold up under the juice. And again, you know, that means there's a little fat in there, but because this is the healthy type of fat, this mm -hmm. is really a good sign that you're getting a juicy burger. And yes, grass-fed beef can be var variable. So you'll find some that's, that's very dry and lean and perhaps people overcook it as well. I think how you cook it, uh, how you grill it is going to make a big difference in whether you retain those juices. So we have a couple little tricks up our sleeve to make sure that when you get into it, there's a nice pool of juice on your on your plate, and you want to soak it up with that that great sourdough bun. We like that. So you're also expanding out. You're thinking beyond Dick's Kitchen to uh, a burger concept as well. Yep. We we know that at some point a, a full service restaurant like Dick's Kitchen has applications in certain places, and then there's reasons why you want more of a quick, casual, faster in and out place, particularly in work environments where... No pun intended on in and out. <laughs> exactly. We, um, need, we need some of those up here, even though it's not the same thing, but we need that. I don't, we know, need if, an I don't know if we need more industrial beef. Well, of all things, we need a little... Yes, we, I, I, I'm probably speaking to the wrong guy about that, but personally, an in and out burger without having to go to San Francisco would be nice. Yeah, but then you get to go to San Francisco. You yeah, know, it's, it's always a use. No, that's thing. fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, you know, it would be nice to just once in a while. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what. Next time I have the, a Jones for an In and Out, I'll just stop by Dick's. There we go. But we'll, you'll just have to tell me to make it fast. Oh, we it doesn't have to be that. Usually fast. takes about, not in that much of a rush. Usually but takes. You don't have to pay for parking up there. No, you if you can find any. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the challenge. No, our the idea is to create a something that's a little more accessible. Um, something you could do downtown where office workers have limited time. They could get in and get out quickly. So you also can reduce the menu. Um, but you're, 
the, the same food philosophy would pertain and, and give people in a quick service environment the kind of access to healthy, um, sustainably raised food that just doesn't exist yet. I mean, Could you do that in a cart? Are you concerned about competing with all the carts and and all the other fast, <laughs> the, the lardos downtown? and? Well, those are some of my favorite businesses, so I no, I don't worry about that because at some point or another, variety and choice is a good thing. Um, and you're not going to feed everybody every day, despite my hope that we will see everybody every day. We, we know that you have to eat other things. Um, it depends on where you are. And yes, a cart would be an interesting further extension of this idea of putting it into a quick casual thing, and we are contemplating that. You know, as much for marketing reasons, as much to get it in front of more people and not so much a cart, but a full-on food truck that can go to events and be a, a mobile billboard, if you will, mm -hmm. um, for what we do um, so that people might try some part of our menu at an event at a farmer's market, but they'll go, wow, I really want to try either this new burger thing um, or go to the parent um, company, Dick's Kitchen, if you want something more elaborate. and. We'll probably move Dick's Kitchen. We'll continue to be grass-fed beef focused, but we'll probably do some other products besides burgers with grass-fed beef. And of course, anybody from New York knows you got to get a good pastrami and a good corned beef going. So we're thinking about how to do that. That would be nice. Yes, there's a little of that here, but I'm still I still like the the thin sliced Carnegie. I'm Carnegie Deli. Okay, yeah, I, so. I, I can Miss, see why. Uh, and have you <laughs> have you been up to uh, Montreal to Schwartz's? You ever been? Have you ever no, I've heard about had it. Their, that's, that's pretty incredible. But again, it's I'm sure they're not using grass-fed beef there. No, but, and it'll be interesting to see how that affects the the process of creating uh, deli-style meats with a higher uh, a higher purpose meat, if you will, um, and to be cognizant of the <clears throat> excuse me the uh, the health implications of how you prepare it so that um, you don't necessarily add to people's digestive problems, which sometimes curing meats can do. So it, we'll be thoughtful about all aspects of it, just as everything at Dick's Kitchen, all it looks like a diner menu, but in fact we've kind of rethought almost every item in order to try to produce a better uh, nutritional outcome and still give people that great comfort feeling, comfort food feeling. Um, as a good example, our ketchup is made without sugar. We have a house-made ketchup. We also serve an organic commercial product, a Heinz product, because some kids just don't have to have some sweetener in it. But we give you the choice and give you an option. Uh, so what do you do to get that message out there? I honestly, and it's, it's, no, it's not criticism, but Dick's Kitchen, to me, from what you're describing, has something very unique. And how do you get out there in a market that's very saturated where you can't do advertising without looking strange in Portland or desperate, I guess is more the word. You can't do advertising. You can do social media, um, but even that is cluttered now. So how do you get the Dick's Kitchen message well, out there? That's a great question. Um, first, you have to be a little bit patient in the beginning because when you're doing something really novel, um, it's not going <clears> to <throat> necessarily get, get you in the foodie press uh, instantaneously if it's a little complicated. If it's if it's the more trendy type of cooking and, and dining, um, that's one thing. But when you are when you have mostly a nutritional mission, um, that's a little complicated and a little hard for them to understand. It's odd in this town because you're not a chef, right? right? So if you were a chef, you'd get more, I think you'd get much more attention. Absolutely. And people would know who this guy Richard is, right. Chef Richard is, but because you're not, it's a... It's a very different focus in Portland when you're when you have a mission instead of a chef. Well, that's exactly right. Um, however, the good thing is that Portlanders are pretty smart and they're beginning to figure it out um, through, you know, through social media is one of the methods we're using. We have a wonderful social media coordinator who loves the medium and and really does it out of a genuine excitement for our concept. Um, that seems to help. We also. Um, and she makes it clear, very clear, that she loves dicks. <laughs> yes, I mean she's she's a wholehearted dick supporter. <laughs> uh, uh, but the other, and she's a jock too. So oh yeah, and she's she's a wonderful example actually of of uh, <laughs> of the how the diet works, how eating eating healthfully and eating along the lines that Dick's Kitchen promotes 
She rides her bike to our meetings from Selwood all the way up we're, to... We're talking about Mary Nichols, just, exactly. just so we're not talking about she, but she's an amazing woman. She is, and and a mother of six, and uh, with the just vitality... Just that in and of itself, that right. period is incredible. And she's, they're good kids. I mean, these are kids that are going to be part of the part of the change we need to make, and they're going to be the foot soldiers to do it. They're, they're exciting. Um, but besides social media, another facet of how we promote is to go through a lot of health practitioners. We, um, because we're in the alternative health paradigm, a lot of these folks are naturally drawn to us. And once they come in and we, we connect with them, they just want to send as many clients as they can who they're advocating for one reason or another, certain dietary restrictions. And when people immediately respond, oh my God, what will I eat? They'll say, well, number one, it's not that hard. And number two, there's always Dick's Kitchen because these guys really think about this stuff. And if you're gluten intolerant or you need to worry about sugar or you need other kinds of dietary restrictions, we actually make it easy on our menu to navigate those, those restrictions. So through the health practitioners, and we've attended local conferences, and we go to the Nutritional Therapy Association meetings, the local Weston Price Foundation is, is a group of folks that are interested in the same dietary principles we are. Um, I just attended a new uh, institute at the naturopathic college called the Food as Medicine Institute. They just had a weekend, uh, their first convocation of speakers around this, this new institute idea. And at every step, we're handing out cards, showing people what we're up to and getting a very strong response from a lot of these practitioners. So you have an opportunity to have those folks become your, your uh, spokespeople, if you will, or your flag wavers. And that's a very powerful connection, um, which translates into individual customers coming in who are delighted that they can, in fact, eat an enjoyable meal without sacrificing the things they thought they'd have to sacrifice. And those folks are perhaps the best customers of all. Those are your brand ambassadors that sure. go and, and talk well, all their Well, that's how friends. you do it in Portland. You need brand ambassadors exactly. just to get out there. You can't say it yourself. Exactly. And that's, that's the challenge. You have to build a brand and you have to um, have the brand be authentic and connected to something that's not just another, another way of doing a burger. I mean, which there's plenty of those out there, but how many of them are, you know, have such a deep nutritional mission as we do is, you know, that's what. So what kind of benefits have you seen health-wise? Has your cholesterol dropped a certain percentage? What, what kind of numbers can you cite? Uh, yes, my total cholesterol numbers come down 100 points since I started Dick's 100. Kitchen. Yeah, a lot. Now, did you go from vegetarian to, okay, now I can eat this meat because I feel better about it, or did you? No, it was work? a staged process. Um, as I was learning about inflammation, um, the hardest thing to realize if you have a propensity, if you have the genetics like I do, is that you've got to stay away from all refined carbs, which means pasta, bread, and bagels, and you know some of That's my so favorite hard. things in, in life. I know, it's so hard. Um, and so uh, even then I was beginning to think about it. Um, but as Dick's Kitchen began to take shape in my mind, um, I thought about lots of things besides my own particular needs with inflammation. So it, it really is a mission that's different than um, even Laughing Planet, which I wanted to serve lower f on the food chain kind of food that anybody could eat, including cyclists um, who are you know exercising all the time but tend to lean toward a vegetarian diet. My, my segue out of vegetarianism was a fairly gradual thing, but then once I started eating grass-fed beef and truly understanding the paradigm, you know, there was less of that foot dragging. I, w I was committed pretty quickly. And I noticed the difference in my, my energy level. Um, I noticed, um, you know, I noticed a couple things that have improved. Um, even, even my cardiologist is a little surprised because we're having our debate about whether I should take statins or not. And what is your, how did, what does your cardiologist say about grass-fed beef? Well, it, I'm not sure I could get him, pin him down on exactly that issue, but he was surprised enough by my my blood work numbers that um, he brought his family into Dick's Kitchen the following weekend after we'd had oh, our appointment. Oh, that's a good sign. And, um, oh, he's a great guy and, and genuinely interested in, in some of these issues because there's the, the medical world is slowly coming around to realize that a lot of the nutritional information, what little of it they were trained to, to understand, um, has really changed a lot and that there's a new paradigm out there that suggests, for example, dietary cholesterol is not the evil 
the evil thing it used to be considered. Well, not only that, I think a lot of doctors are realizing that medication, and patients too, they don't want to treat everything with medication. The, well, you know, the, what you're ingesting three, six, ten times a day is more important than that pill. Absolutely. Um, so I think obviously it's, uh, it's important to them. Do you have, do you see Dick's Kitchen outside of Portland? Someday I hope so, because uh, we're hoping that we're at the beginning of our uh, of an evolutionary change in how people approach food, um, and it would be a good sign that we were able to go to communities that maybe not quite ready now, but in the near future um, would be. I think it's it's going to happen, and um, you know we're going to build a couple of Dick's Kitchens and this new this new burger concept around Portland, both to be able to satisfy more customers, but also to understand the variables probably so we can look outside Portland because, again, my mission is to have grass-fed producers be successful, and so we have to be their, their leading edge, as it were. So when you're in, uh, it's an interesting question because I usually ask most everyone sitting in that seat, but when you go out in Portland, where are you, where are you going to eat? What types of things or what places do you like? Well, I like a lot of places that I, I can't eat in anymore, um, but I would say that probably my favorite is is anything from the Toro Bravo clan, mm-hmm. including Tasty and Alder, Tasty and Sons. I, I admire their approach to food. It's always interesting, and it's fairly easy to eat in the restrictions I have there. So I, I love them. Um, uh, you know, there's other people, of course, that, that, are, um, that are wonderful. Andina is one of my favorite restaurants. But I do that for special occasions. It's not as much of a in a, a daily event. Naturally, the, the price is a little too high. But it's wonderful food that also wonderful dining experience. Um, but I'm really the kind of guy that eats mostly at Dick's Kitchen, um, partly because I know that the food is what my diet really requires, and partly as I have to stay on top of what we're doing. This is a it's a moving target, and eating it and talking with the cooks about. Did we get it done right? Is the seasoning right? Are we are we really approaching it? Is an ongoing back and forth conversation. So I'm I'm one of those folks that that doesn't eat out as often as I should. I I, I probably should do it because I should support other chefs who are doing wonderful work here in Portland. But it'll also help my ideas if I get out a little bit. Nevertheless, I'm I'm one of those guys that likes to be at the restaurant, talk to customers, really find out why they're there and how we can how we can better serve them in the future. So what are your biggest challenges at, at Dick's? Um, getting everybody to understand what we're really doing. Um, a lot of folks walk in just looking for a good burger, and maybe they're expecting regular French fries, and instead they get our, our infamous knot fries, our, our air-baked convection fries. And if you they're really looking for the classic greasy fry experience, they might be disappointed. So our biggest challenge is to have folks understand what we're up to and perhaps, you know, give us a little room to show them that not all food has to be super greasy to be super delicious, but you have to be in the right mindset for that. If you're just looking for a burger and fries and cheap, you need to go down the street. So other than a burger, what's your favorite thing? At, you know, you're eating there a lot. What, do you, what, what would you tell people they need to order at Dick's? Well, they must try our grass-fed beef. But beyond that, we have some other special burgers that come and go on the menu on a rotational basis. And we have one called the Dork Burger, which is coming up this week. Uh, It's actually starting today. And it's made with half duck and half pork. uh, And it's a a muscovy duck, so it's actually not as fatty as you'd think. So we actually put the pork in there to hold it all together. And for some reason, the combination of flavors is unbelievable. It's just delightful. So I, I often recommend that when it's there. Um, we, you know, we have a few other things. We have a venison lentil chili that I recommend because venison is a unique flavor that harmonizes quite well. It's not even a normal chili in that it's got a Provencal kind of hint to it in the spicing. Um, wonderful product. Uh, but we'll, we'll be having some newer products that I can say, hey, try our corned beef. Soon enough. So, are you when you travel, are you able to find places like yours where you can try some new things and generate new ideas, or is it? It's got to be pretty difficult. Well, you you stay in if you travel to places like San Francisco or New York. Um, no, there's always people out there trying the uh, cutting edge of food that I can learn from. So, and what do you call it, by the way? What is what do you call it? 
the well, you I mean, we could call it the grass-fed beef movement, but what do you call what you do at Dick's? What's the, well, the there's one a, sentence? There's a larger term that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. It's called paleo, um, which suggests that we eat a little closer to our ancestral uh, type, meaning that we, we reduce or eliminate uh, pro- highly processed food, lots of sugar, and uh, all the white foods, the bread, the pastas, mm-hmm. the things that tend to raise our blood sugar. I didn't hear about that until, and maybe it's because I'm not aware and, and don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't care what you're talking about, but didn't. Until um, about three or four years ago that someone said, have you heard of the paleo diet? And, and then once I heard about it, it's like, you know, if you buy a car, all of a sudden you see it on the road a lot. Right. But once I heard about it, uh, I heard a lot about it. Well, so. it's, a, it's a massively growing movement, and it has unfortunately been caricatured or or turned into a parody by folks that don't either get it or, or have a vested interest in uh, different viewpoints. Um, but in fact, it's a two million year old diet, so it's not a fad. It's not something that's going to go away like the, the South Beach diet. But it's something that, that can be interpreted lots of ways, and I tend to interpret it pretty broadly and not as a set of rules, but as kind of some filters you put what you eat and how much you exercise and the quality of your social relations all into this set of filters that say, hey, we, we've evolved, if, if indeed you accept that we've evolved, um, in, and we've evolved in a context that included eating certain kinds of foods, getting a lot of exercise, and being around our tribal homies. Um, these are probably pretty good ways to reorient ourselves, those of us that feel a little disillusioned with modern civilization, and from a dietary perspective, it's it's unmistakably healthier. So, you know, guys our age, we can talk about you know what we need to do to get healthier, and we're concerned about it because we're a little we're a little more aware of our mortality. You know, right. we have we're, parents, we're, and we're getting there. How do you convince a thirty-year-old? And and I know in Portland, it's a very healthy, largely a very healthy community. But how do you convince a thirty-year-old that they need to eat? They need to watch their their health and and be mindful of it when with food intake. Well, hopefully they they have older relatives and folks our age to remind them that um, if they continue on the path, then they're going to end up having to require cardiac bypass surgery and or um, have to take drugs to manage diabetes and all these other things. It's it's one of those. Do you think they can relate to it though? I don't think so. Um, not initially. It'll take right. some kind of a health event or somebody in their family coming down with cancer or something where they may begin to reevaluate it. But it is one of our challenges at, at Dick's Kitchen and in my general purpose to try to reorient food toward more nutritional outcome is how do you get folks to um, understand the connection that what they're eating in their 30s will determine the quality of their life um, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think there is one one trick we may be able to use, and that is the idea that eating unintelligently vastly increases your risk of developing Alzheimer's as you get older. And it's now unmistakable that Alzheimer's may in fact be type 3 diabetes, and all of the implications of eating incorrectly and monkeying with your blood sugar literally have an enormous impact on the likelihood that you'll develop cognitive decline. So if you're looking forward to having fun when you get older, um, if you want to remember realizing you're having fun exactly remembering you're having fun um, it's something that that might be that might get somebody's attention it certainly got mine um, and as my memory begins to go bad I'm looking at every opportunity I can to um, to try to slow the process down and it turns out through diet and through exercise uh, both uh, crucial um, you can do that and uh, if you know if I can get to somebody in their 30s in fact I have a a very good friend's son visiting Portland right now, my, one of my best college friends from Bloomington. Uh, his son is 32, and um, I thought he was like 16, but you turn around. It's amazing and he, how fast that goes. Right, and having the conversation with him is exactly in the same vein of what you're talking about, is how do I convince him that unless he thinks a little more critically about what he's eating, he's going to end up looking like his dad. Um, I've been using that threat <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> And you know what? It's worked <laughs> yeah. with them. They're much better than I am. Well, good. They're good. doing all the right things. Good for you. And thankfully, we're here in Portland. We're, they can go to the farmer's market and do, do those things that I never didn't exist when I was, when I was their age. No, it's, it's true. Portland is a wonderful place that, that 
has the support structure and the means to have people become healthier and uh, eat differently and, and relate to how we grow our food because it isn't just what we eat, whether you're a meat eater or a vegetarian. It's, it's how we grow our food. And that's perhaps the most important thing we still haven't quite got into the consciousness here in Portland. And that's one of our Oh, goals. it's it's starting, though. I mean, oh, yes. it's, people are much more aware than they were 10 years ago or that than 40-year-olds, you know, 40-year-olds when I was 40, much more aware right, of but, what's, going, what's going on, where it's produced, and why it's important. But at the same time, there's, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if misinformation is the right word, but there's a lot of mumbo-jumbo out there um, that tends to make the issue a little cloudier than it needs to be. For instance, the emphasis on organics. Great idea, but you can create organics in, in a nutritionally depleted soil growing medium that really has no nutritional value, um, and it's yet it's organic, doesn't have pesticides and herbicides. Great thing, but you have to look at living ecosystems as the source of the nutrients that we haven't even discovered yet. But all those messages are fantastic. We're in an environment that where bacon is fun, <laughs> right? That, at the end of the day, that's the mess that overshadows your message. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. That and that makes that that's our best ally. When you can say bacon is fun, we've all got a shot at getting getting people to listen and, and enjoy, because you gotta enjoy what you're eating. That's the first rule. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, because we have we had Jeff Reidebach in here who was talking, do you know Jeff with Homegrown Smoker? I don't. Well, he's got a vegan barbecue food oh, cart. Great. And so he was talking a lot about sustainability, and you two should get together, actually. Wait, uh, we could have a debate, that'd be great. Well, I don't necessarily know, I think you'd be on the same page with a lot. And uh, it's really, it's great to have these types of conversations. And when we met about a month ago, uh, we had a 15-minute conversation. I was fascinated. And more people should get in to Dick's to not only try your food, but to chat with you about it and, and have an educational experience in, in addition to a culinary experience. Well, thank you. And, and I do hope they, they'll come find me because I try to hang out and, and be available to customers. How often are you there? Uh, just about every night. Uh, just ask my crew. They're not always too thrilled about that, but um, particularly on Northwest 21st. The one on Southeast Belmont is uh, a little too small for me to hang out in too much. I, I tend to dominate the room. It's also the older location, and they're a lot better at what they need to be doing, but on Northwest 21, we're, we're building our crew now, and, and it's a bigger space with more outdoor seating, and Sometimes I just need to be there to be the busboy. And, and, uh, and tonight might be a good outdoor seating night. I think I think I'll I think I'll be there tonight. Good. Well, uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see you soon there. Appreciate your seeing you here. Very good. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. All right, let's talk Dick. Let's talk. Let's talk some. Dick. Let's get it all out there. Yeah, and and, initially and you just... said let's no dick jokes, but it's impossible not to have a dick joke. I, yeah, I mean you can't. You can't really avoid it. Did you said you had a conversation with him prior about why did he call it Dick? Well, I think I either heard from him or Mary Nichols about Dicks, but mm -hmm. you know they could have called it Richards, right? But so they called it Dicks because you know they it's catchier. It's, it's a little catchier, and Memorable. Mary gets to read re, wear the shirts that say "I love Dicks." Yeah, that's what she does. That's do they sell that's those? His PR. At his, uh, I don't know, but if they, they, I'm sure that can be made. Yeah, I'll have so, to get one. <laughs> Mary has them, so you know Mary. <laughs> Mary will do it. I gotta but, get the hookup. But I gotta tell you, um, I, I mentioned it in the uh, in our talk, but um, I wasn't really aware that Dix was doing what it was doing because he's not a chef. Richard isn't a chef, and if he had been, I think there would have been a clear um, message out there that he's doing something very different. But because he's an entrepreneur and he's a concept guy and he has other people cooking for him, I think that message was a little harder to get out in a city like Portland, Oregon. Yeah, and I really like his, uh, his plan of attack, which is to seek out the audiences that are already receptive to the idea by talking to the health practitioners and the naturopaths and having that message filter to their audiences because those people are already seeking out an answer and seeking out a solution for how they can eat healthier. Um, you know, converting people. Be. No one hit me with it. I mean, I have high cholesterol mm -hmm. and I have, you know, a history of heart disease, 
no one hit me, and I don't mean to indict anybody on his team, but it really hadn't gotten through to me that I need to go to Dick's Kitchen because it's going to be a healthier experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, because, well, I mean, is your cardiologist telling you to, to eat no, healthier? No, but you would think I'm fairly informed on the Portland food scene. Right. Uh, and I just wasn't really aware of it. I I've never been there. The only time I've, the only things I've heard from people is they they thought it was great and it's very different, but I've heard from other people, eh. And he mentioned it in the, when he was talking. He said that people who aren't aware that they're walking into a special place, you know, who are looking for greasy fries, they're the people who are probably going to go, eh, it was all right. It's this kind of weird no man's land where you definitely have, you know, the, the vegan places, right? You've got, you've got places that are very, very health-minded and that cater towards the vegan um you know, lifestyle and, and, and vegan palate and so forth. And then you've got everyone else that is always, that is already talking about, you know, farm to table and sustainable food and sourced, you know, here in Portland, but he's kind of straddling a lot, a lot of different areas, a lot of different worlds. Um, and, but, but he's all in on it. That's yeah. you know, a lot of other oh, restaurants yeah. aren't all in on it. They, they, do a lot of it, but then the, at the end of the day, it's not all about grass-fed beef and he's and paleo. So he's he's in it. And yeah. I'm curious to try some emu beyond using it on Word Feud to score, you know, 36 points because it's a good 36-point word on, <laughs> on Word Feud. Yeah, um, I, wanted, I definitely want to give it a try. And, and it, it, it sounds like a great place for families as well, uh, which I'm all on board with. You know, add it to the list of of places, I'm going to put a list up. I'm going to do that on Facebook or something. A list of places where you can take your children, and yeah, it doesn't have to be places I'll stay away from. Well, eh, shut up, Chris. <laughs> My kid's a dream, and you know it. Um, <laughs> I had kids. I already went. I know what it's like. But it's hard because you know I know so many people who have kids have. who feel like they don't. <laughs> they didn't go away. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was speaking in the past tense. Uh, but um, oh, I had something I wanted to say, and I can't <laughs> can't remember. You're going to have to you edit this You took us guy. off the rails, Chris. I'm Congratulations. Sorry. No, you're putting a list up. Uh, well, a list of places that you can take your kids that doesn't have to be a chain restaurant. And if they have, you know, good burgers that, you know, are good for you and tasty, and it's got that casual atmosphere, you know, why not? I so many times I think people feel like they're just relegated to a certain well, style of restaurant or certain and therefore a certain, you know, kind of food when you have when you have young children. It doesn't have to be that way. Well, his here. new concept may be perfect because it's in and out, too. So, you don't you know, it's a little quicker. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I that I respect a lot is that Richard is a concept guy and he's developed this restaurant. There are a lot of people who would have developed the concept. And then not been there. And he's part of it. Uh, he is there to talk the talk, talk about what he's trying to accomplish at Dick's Kitchen at the restaurant. And uh, so he's a, his own ambassador outside the restaurant and in. So I think that that's something that makes the experience a little different when you go there. Yeah.